Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. Trace Blackmore here, the host of Scaling Up. And I got to thank everybody out there in the Scaling Up Nation because I have asked for it and several of you are making sure that I receive it. I am talking about your comments, your questions, all of that stuff. Please keep them coming in. Go to scalinguph2o.com and let me know what questions you have because I love answering those on the air. One of the questions that I have received from many, or I guess it's not a question, I guess it's more of a request, but several people out there in the Scaling Up Nation say they really enjoy when we get somebody who's been in the industry for a good amount of time and they've got experiences and they can tell us about them. I know we have listeners in the Scaling Up Nation that have just started in the water treatment industry to listeners that have been in the industry for 60 years. I think that's incredible. And I want to make sure that we tap into some of that knowledge so we can share that. You know, one of the goals of this show is uh, to make sure we are making this industry better one water treater at a time. So I reached out to a friend of mine, Dick Horrigan, and I asked Dick. Dick has Dick has has been in the industry for uh, for a couple more years than I have, and he has had some very unique experiences. So Dick said, "Yeah, I'd love to come on the show and tell you all about that." And I think you guys are really going to enjoy hearing my interview with Dick Horrigan. Well, my lab partner today is Dick Horrigan. And Dick, I'm very excited to talk up to you and, and find out about your water treatment career. And just wanted to welcome you to Scaling Up. And how are you, Dick? Doing great, Trace. Thank you very much for inviting me. This looks like a, a fun time for us. I, I think it will be a lot of fun. So I know a lot of people in the water treatment community do know you, but there may be a few out there that don't know who Dick Horrigan is. So do you mind taking a second and letting the audience know who Dick Horrigan is? Certainly. Trace, I kind of consider myself to be a chemist, a soldier, and an entrepreneur. In January of 2018 marked my 45th year in the water treatment industry. November 4th of 2006, I was finally discharged from the U.S. Army at the rank of lieutenant colonel after 35 years. And December 4th of this year, uh, 2017, will mark 25 years that I run my own corporation. So that kind of, you know, explains why I think those three things are the, the three cornerstones of my life. Well, I think we're going to touch on each one of those three things during right. our conversation today. So why don't we go ahead and get started? So how did you become a water treater? Well, that uh, that's always interesting. Is, uh, I listened to the Jim Lukanich one, and tell you what, he's right. Uh, almost none of us intentionally got into this business. I, I got off of active duty in the Army. I was married and had a two-year-old daughter, and I couldn't seem to find a job. It was uh, during a recession, and my father knew somebody. It was the uh, the president of the R.D. Warner Ladder Company. The, the guys that make the aluminum ladders, you've probably seen the gorilla holding the ladder. And he had asked uh, R.D. if there were any openings at uh, the factory where they made the ladders because, you know, his son needed a job. And he says, well, what does your son do? And he says, well, my son's a chemist. He said, well, wouldn't he rather be working at a chemical company instead of a ladder factory? And he said, well, I suppose. And so uh, he said he had a friend he went to synagogue with, and the friend's name was Dr. Merrill Salutsky. Well, Dr. Salutsky, who happened to be the vice president of Dearborn Chemical, 
up in Lake Zurich, Illinois. So just before Christmas, I'm in Dr. Solitsky's office, and he's interviewing me for a research position in, in the chemistry uh, section upstairs, upstairs in the lab. It's kind of touchy because the guy that was holding this job was had prostate cancer, and he was dying. But he needed somebody to replace him. And so I was hired to, uh, to take this guy's place. And my first day in the water treatment industry was the day after New Year's. But I couldn't work in the lab. I had to work downstairs, had to work on the experimental boilers, and it had to be a complete secret what my uh, reason for being hired was. And so in March, uh, this guy uh, did, in fact, pass away. And at that time, I moved upstairs and, and took over the, uh, the research on the boiler water section, working mostly with the new oxygen scavengers doing formulations. And I helped out in the, uh, in the analytical lab. I was one of two analytical chemists on the floor. And whenever, they, whenever the lab got booked up, I'd get called over there. And next thing you know, I'm doing resin analysis and corrosion coupon studies and doing all the actual lab work that generates these reports. And I mean, it was a tremendous experience for me. Because here I am, I worked on experimental boiler now, I'm doing, I'm doing lab analysis for stuff that I'm going to be using the rest of my life, and I'm learning all about formulations. It was just unbelievable. So that's how I got into the water treatment part. And then a couple of years went by and they needed a wastewater specialist and they were having trouble. So they asked me to come out in the field and see if I could help the sales force. I made a couple of sales. The uh, sales manager of that district says to me, you know, Dick, you could make a whole lot more money in sales than you can working in our laboratory. And so before too long, I switched over to the sales department. And he was right. I was doing a whole lot better than that. And I went through all the training and here I are. I'm a water treater. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and then what, when you were out in sales, what was your job like then? It was exciting. I mean, I love people and it's, uh, you know, it, I didn't have any experience in sales. And my boss said, you know what, Dick, just just be yourself. You don't don't have to be somebody else to be a salesman. Just be who you are. And he was 100 percent right. You know, you, you just it's really as technical as I am. The most important thing in sales is building relationships with people. You just don't go for the technology. You go for the relationship. That's what starts the whole ball rolling. So would that be your piece of advice for somebody starting out that, you know, be yourself, don't worry about all the 10 syllable words that you know on the biocides and all of that stuff, just get to know the person? Yeah, I would say so. The, the best salesmen I have ever met are really good people persons. Uh, they're, they're just very good with that sort of thing. And, you know, I understand that sometimes they do get themselves in over their head. They're going to need technical expertise from somebody like AWT or people like myself you know, things of that nature. But until you get the sale, you don't have the problem. <laughs> sure. So what what was your process uh, when you went out and you, you said, hey, that's a, that's a potential customer across the street. I don't have them. And you went after them. How did you do that? Well, I, you know, back in the day, you just went in and you kind of schmoozed the receptionist and all that kind of stuff. And you get names and, and phone numbers and you never tried to really barge in. You'd call back for an appointment and you'd, you know, it was all a numbers game. I, you know, you, you know, I, I think I figured out that, that, that one customer resulted from two proposals and uh, two proposals might've been four or five surveys and four or five surveys might've been a hundred cold calls or something like that, or 200 cold calls. So it was all just like, you know, how, how long can I keep going and, and, and whatever. So it was a numbers game. 
And you did that for a while, and then a change happened. Tell us about that. Well, there were a number of changes. I don't know where we're at right now, but on this timeline. <laughs> but when I was with Dearborn, after being in the field for about uh, three or four years, I ended up getting an opportunity to become their technical director. Well, this sort of put me full circle. I mean, here I was, I was like 25 years of age. I am now I'm out, out there with uh, the sales force trying to solve problems that I've never seen before. Luckily, I had a good boss, uh, George Beck. He was a great guy. I had a good background from the chemistry standpoint. I had a few years behind me in sales. I'd worked in the lab. So technically, what we would do is I would go out there. I'd get briefed on the problem. I'd grab samples. I'd bring them back to the lab. I'd have the lab guys doing either water or, or deposit analysis on it. We'd get all the results, and then I'd go back and talk with my boss, who had had years of experience in the water treatment industry. And we would theorize as to what was going on and come up with a course of action, which then I would go back out into the field and present this course of action to the sales manager and the sales force. What was great about this job is I would see problems that most water treaters probably wouldn't see in their lifetime or maybe take 20 or 30 years. And I was out in the field two or three times a week with different problems that were like once in a lifetime problems. It was just incredible. So you really learned on, on the job and, and got the experience of some of the best water treaters out there. Yeah, it was great. It was unbelievable. It was really a, a, an education you couldn't get anywhere else. All right. So then what happened? Well, uh, after a while, I, I got, you know, I needed the money. So I wasn't really making as much money as technical director as I was a salesman. So uh, somebody got me on the phone and they said, you know, we have this job for you in Cleveland. Well, this this starts a string of really, really goofy employers. I mean, I, I, I had I had a string of, of three people that I ended up working for. The first one was uh, I was a sales manager and uh, we had negotiated a salary and I got my first paycheck after the guy moved me out to Cleveland. And the paycheck was uh, really for the amount of money that the guy had initially offered me, which I had rejected. So I went downstairs and I, he wasn't around. So I walked into the vice president's office and I questioned him about what my, my salary was. Well, he, he knew nothing about it. And when the boss got back to the office, he was livid. Apparently, I even with my salary check, I was making more than the vice president. And the vice president was now angry that he had been there for 20 years. I was making more than him. And I got called into my, his office for the president's office for a real tongue lashing. And he, I was told that, yes, you're going to get this money, but that's a yearly salary, and the rest of it was going to be bonus, and I hadn't been there a year yet. Oh, that was kind of crazy. Well, I ended up working for them for a year anyway, and uh, I did learn a lot. I learned a lot about being a sales manager. I had to manage uh, straight commission people and salary people, and boy, I tell you, there's a hell of a difference between the two. I was in charge of their laboratory, and I was also their technical director. Finally, I did get that check. He gave it to me near at the end of a year, made a big deal out of giving it to me, and then my salary went back to the small salary again. So again, another opportunity opened up, and I went to a company called ChemClear, which was a hazardous waste management company. And they were a startup operation. We were getting together because of the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, RICRA, and I was to be their plant manager in Cleveland. And uh, they had four plants, and they were building like crazy, 
And, and I was doing pretty well with that. I had hired four chemists in the laboratory to work for me. And, uh, but I found out one thing about the chemists I had working. They just were pretty much by the book. They would follow all the instructions, all the company rules and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it, it turns out that a lot of chemists just aren't imaginative. You know, they were kept, they kept rejecting the samples. We wouldn't do this. We wouldn't do that. And here I am thinking, man, I need to get some business in here. Or we're not going to be able to meet our bottom line. I can't be taking money from the corporate office every month to be able to keep this plant running. So I go into the lab and so why are you rejecting these samples? And there's this reason and that reason. So I started playing around with them and I'm trying to teach these people to be creative. Well, we found ways to break these various wastes that they didn't even think of. And I was you know, trying to teach people to look for, look for things out of the box. Within about four or five months, I was turning a profit and became the mm -hmm. cash cow of the company. But and startups being what they are, they're always a little bit thin on money. And uh, uh, so one day on you know, the electrical company came in, they want to shut the power off. And I thought, okay, I better call my corporate office. So I did. Yeah, that's never that's never a good conversation. Oh, no, no. And they said he they wanted to know the check number. So and how many times have I done this? You know, guy, yeah, okay, you're going to pay me. What's the check number? So the, I I call the comptroller and he says, tell him the check number is one three seven four. I said, that's it, 1374. He says, how the hell would I know, Dick? When they get the check, they're not going to care what the number is. So I thought, geez, and I've asked that question and been convinced that something was going to happen because I got a number. And uh, <laughs> I suddenly realized that that was a stupid question all along. And uh, and then I also was on credit references. This, com this company had three good credit references. Nobody else got paid. Well, how many times did you ever set up an account and you say you want three good credit references? So now I don't care about that anymore because I know they're going to give me the three good credit references they have. So it, it's all a sham. So darn if didn't the ultimate didn't happen is that somebody out in the Chester, Pennsylvania plant goes and screws up. And next thing you know, the EPA is on this company's butt. Well, I was pretty much in line to be the vice president of operations for this company. At least that's what the owner had told me because he thought I was really on the ball and he was going to have too much to do. But all of a sudden, I'm also now the highest paid plant manager in the company at a time when they need to find money to defend themselves on this lawsuit. Well, next day, I'm out of the job. So I'm back on the street again. So that was kind of an interesting learning experience. So then I got another job offer in Chicago. So, okay, I'm going to move back to Chicago. Started working for this company. It was a, a water treatment company, a national company. And the guy's an area manager. And uh, I'm taking over his sales territory. Well, I'm going about four months down the road, and I'm finding out that he doesn't know how to be a manager. He still thinks he's a salesman. I go into my accounts, and they said, oh, John was here yesterday. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know he was here. And I said, well, how come you're not using this product anymore? And he says, well, John said that, you know, we don't have to use a sludge conditioner in our boiler anymore because by now our boiler should be clean. Well, geez, I am making a straight commission salary and John is finding ways to turn my customers from using the products that I'm trying to sell. Plus, he's probably going to get their boilers dirty again. So I go back and I complain to my boss about it. And he tells me what I need to do is I need to sell more. So we ended up with a plan where I'm going to go make sales calls with John. He's going to show me how to sell. So we go into this one account and it's an HOH account. And he asked, John asked the guy how much he's paying for a drum of chemical. He said, well, he's paying $420. He says, Dick, go out and get your price book. 
So I go out to the car, come back with the price book. He says, look up 101. Tell him how much that cost a drum. I said, well, a drum of 101 cost $125. Well, the guy's impressed. So John sells him the drum of 101. And we're walking out, and he says, there you go. That's how it's done. See how fast we got a new account? I said, John, 101 is nothing but water and carboxymethylcellulose. How is that going to do anything for this guy's boiler? He says, don't worry about that. You got a new account. When the drum's gone, just sell him something that will work. Well, I thought, oh, God, I, I need to quit this company. I need to find somebody wow. else to work for. So I went from them about six months later. I got a job with Mogul, and I stayed with them for seven years. And so those were some of the crazy things. And then after that, there was a, a Cleaver Brooks job. Cleaver Brooks was getting into the water treatment business, and they were paying, paying incredible salaries. So I went to Cleaver Brooks for about two and a half years. And I was their best salesman. I was doing a great job for them. And I'm down in Southern Illinois and I call in on, you know, the old pay phones. You get up there in the line and you wait and you wait. And I get through to the office. And my boss says to me, Dick, he says, I need to have you come into the office. I said, you know, Pat, come on. I just got down here. I've got a full week's worth of work lined up. I can't be coming back to the office. I said to him, I mean, what's so important? What do you want to do, fire me? And he says, well, Dick, I didn't want to tell you over the phone. I said, uh, okay, fine. So I, I go into the office the next day. He says, wow, we've decided we're getting out of the water treatment business. And uh, you're the most expensive rep, so you're the first one to go. He says, but uh, the other two guys are not going to be here much longer either. So he drives me home, and he was really feeling bad. You know, Trace, I'm sure you fired people, and I have too. And, you know, it, it really is an emotional experience. I hate hate to do it it's it's horrible so i can see that pat was feeling Absolutely. pretty bad so i said to him i said pat what do you uh, what are you planning to do with all my test equipment he says well geez dick i i don't know he says uh, do you want it i said well yeah i said i'm a water treater i'm going to stay in this business i would surely love to have this equipment he says well it's yours then so he got me to the house we opened up my garage door, and he helped me unload the stuff from the trunk of my car into the garage. And uh, so now I had the equipment I wanted. And uh, so, okay, well, they're getting out of the water treatment business. Now what am I going to do? I got to tell you, I was at a very, very low point in my life. So, you know, as a matter <laughs> as anybody would when they just lost their job, come to think of it. But so I needed to decide where was I going. I, I'd worked for a number of companies that were just just crazy. Although they were all learning experiences, I got something of value out of every one of them. It was just it was just nutty. The best companies I had worked for were Dearborn and Mogul. They both seemed to have their acts together. So I said, it's time to do an assessment. You've probably done something like this yourself. It's kind of like the Ben Franklin close where you list all your liabilities on one column and all your assets on the other. And uh, so I thought, well, okay, here I am. I just got divorced about a month ago. I'm now paying child support to two ex-wives. Sure. I'm living in a house with a mortgage. And there's a for sale sign in the front yard. I don't have a job. Okay, those, and I still have to feed myself and pay my utility bills. And unemployment compensation probably isn't going to do this. So then on the asset side, let's see. I have 700 bucks. <laughs> wow. You know, uh, I've got, a, I got a, a severance check coming. 
I'm in the Army Reserve, the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, so I'm picking up about six or seven hundred dollars a month off of my off of my drill pay. And then what else? Well, let's see. I'm a chemist. I've been a research chemist. I've been a salesman. I've been a sales manager. I've been a technical director. I've been a plant manager. So I even ran a startup company. I thought, you know what? I can do this. I can start my own business. So Monday morning, I went and I, I saw my, uh, my divorce attorney, who was a lousy divorce attorney, but he really is a very good corporate attorney. I told him I wanted to form a corporation. So he sold me 800 bucks. Well, I figured I could probably cover that with what I have coming in. So then he says to me, well, what do you want to call this company? And all of a sudden, duh, I don't know. <laughs> I just know I want to be in business. So I only thing I knew was my name. So I said, okay, let's call it Richard Harrigan Incorporated. It's a dumb name. Let me tell you, a dumb name. Because uh, it doesn't really tell you anything about my company. So uh, we got that incorporation started, but I didn't want to waste any time. It was going to take a couple months. So I started selling right away. And the first thing I did, of course, was go after my Cleaver Brooks accounts. One, I did not have a non-compete agreement. Two, they were getting out of the business. So these people had nowhere else to go. I uh, had already met Gary Garcia. So I started working some products up with him, got some prices. And before you, before you know it, I had like 12 new accounts. It was back in October. Sure. Corporation wasn't even up. So I had to come up with some name. I made up some name that we used for about two months. I didn't have any insurance. I didn't have, you know, it's like it's like this whole thing is really fly by the seat of your pants. And uh, so the corporation got up and I converted all the account products over to that. I had a few tax problems because now I had the self-employment tax and I didn't have a payroll account. <laughs> so I had to get an accountant. And it was, it was kind of crazy for a while. And then I had linked up with a friend of mine that used to work for Cleaver Brooks. And he told me about this company he was working with, and they had wanted to talk to me. So I, I went up there to one of their meetings in Wisconsin, and I talked to them for a bit. And this guy wanted to pay me $800 a month to sell products with his label on it. Well, you know, that was sounding pretty good, $800 a month that I could count on. So I had some money on the side coming in from Richard Harrigan Incorporated, and then he didn't mind if I, you know, had those, and I worked for him too. And from now on, everything I sell is going to have your label on it. That's fine. Well, we went down the road. It was supposed to be a three-year deal. He was going to give me $800. Well, about a year and a half into it, he calls me up and uh, he says, can't do it. I'm going to have to stop paying you. I just had some problems come up here. I need to divert that money elsewhere. Well, we only had a handshake. That was our agreement. There was nothing in paper on that either. So uh, what I did is I said, okay, fine. I'll just continue to service these accounts. But uh, any new business I'm getting is now going to have my label on it. And I also met through this company, another company. Now, every one of his reps had their own corporations. It was really kind of weird. And this one guy was handling all of Wisconsin. He wanted nothing south of Janesville. So I worked out a deal where I'd buy those accounts from him. So now I'm handling all of Illinois and the southern half of Wisconsin. That went, you know, for a while and just making some decent money. And then the guy that I had the handshake agreement with dies. Well, the new guy comes into uh, the company, and he's taken over. He's one of the reps, and we all get together to have a meeting up in Wisconsin someplace. And he's telling us all the great things he's planning to do with this company and what we're going to do and all that kind of stuff. He says, but I need to make sure that I got all you guys on board. So we start. I want you to sign these things. So he starts passing out these pieces of paper. 
Well, I look at it, and it's a non-compete agreement. Well, I'm looking at all the guys. They're all signing these things, so I'm reading through the thing, and I'm thinking, I can't believe this. Each of these guys spent their own money to form their own corporations. Each of these guys has bought or leased their own car, is paying all their own car expenses. They're paying all their own food, hotel bills. They're paying all their own all their own travel expenses, health insurance, and they're signing over the last 10 or 15 or 12 years worth of work over to this, to this guy. So I took the paper and I said, sorry, I'm not signing this. And so after the meeting broke up, he came over to me. He says, you know, Dick, there's no problem. We can just continue the way we've been. You know, you know what? I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. So I knew that he was just trying to figure out how he was going to, you know, take me down. So right away, I started converting all those accounts to mine. And within, within a week, I had done that. And within about three months, most all their drums were gone off the floor. And my drums were there with my labels. <laughs> and it, it got better after that, for sure. When did you know that you made it as a business owner? Oh, golly. When I started, I don't know, maybe about three years in. I mean, there's always been promise. But, you know, I started paying people in less than 30 days you know, 10 days net, 15 days net, when earlier, I had trouble making my bills, you know, it was very, very difficult. So you just, you know, people are 60 days, 90 days, you're just trying to figure out how you're going to hang on. So it was mostly an economic realization that I'd arrived. All right. Did you ever regret going into business for yourself? Oh, God, no. Ah, absolutely not. It's the best thing I ever did. You know, the thing is the peace of mind and I got to tell you, Trace, the meetings are a whole lot shorter. I'm the only <laughs> right, guy in the right. company. No, I, it's, just, <laughs> it, it's just there's always been problems. But, you know, you can call it bull when someone else causes it to happen. When you create your own bull, you know, you know, it's like, OK, I got to fix this. You know, there's something wrong, but it's always been great. It's there's been difficulties, but it's. It's always a problem. They come one at a time and you handle them one at a time. Dick, have you ever had employees with your company? No, never. So that's why you love it so much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I considered it, Trace. I really did. And I thought hiring an employee was either going to be the best or worst thing I ever did. And uh, I decided that, you know, I don't have any children that, that are interested in following this. So this was just going to be a, a one person only business. So. That's it. Well, you're, you're definitely right. Uh, things do become a lot more complicated with employees. We've had some some good ones. We've had some not so good ones. And uh, thankfully, right now, I think we've had the, the the best group of employees at my company that that we've ever had. That's wonderful. But uh, not about me, more about you. Uh, what would you say your biggest accomplishment was? Well, let's see. Certainly, starting my own business was was number one. Let me just see where we're at here. You're you are bouncing all over the place here with me, just like you said you were going to do. Uh, <laughs> let me see. Keeping you on your toes. Yeah, you sure are. You sure are. I'm trying to think. There's so many things, you know, because I've done well in a lot of different places. But I did have one story I wanted to share on that. It, it, was, it goes back to my first start at Dearborn. Because I was so young, it was my first job. I was like, I was out of, out of the Army, out of graduate school. And I was... Uh, I was in uh, that experimental boiler situation at, at, at Dearborn, and they had a situation where their well water just went down. They either lost well, I don't remember whether Dearborn had their own dedicated wells or whether they were getting it from Lake Zurich, 
So they had to keep the plant open. So they started trucking water in. Well, I uh, took apart this experimental boiler. And what I was supposed to do was I was supposed to scrape the scale off of these uh, basically uh, just heat exchangers, electric heat exchangers that are stuck in this boiler. And we measured that and determined how much this program scaled on this water. It was kind of a neat thing because we'd synthesize water from San Francisco or Minneapolis or whatever. And we then we treat it with a program and measure before and after and that kind of stuff. Well, I brought these things out and they're, the scale is jet black. It looks like popcorn and it smells. So I called my boss over and he says, what did you do? And I was like, you know. I don't know. I said, this is just following the directions here. He says, I've never seen this in my life. You must have done something wrong. Well, it's it smells familiar to me. It smells like caramelized sugar. Well, then I remembered, wait a minute. The trucks that are delivering the water to Dearborn Chemical, uh, they're all domino sugar trucks. So I went over to the tap and I got a beaker mm. down and I put a half a beaker of water in, in the beaker I put it down in the sink, got my safety glasses, and grabbed for a uh, gallon jug of concentrated sulfuric acid and proceeded to pour it into the beaker. And, of course, it comes to a rolling boil. And I picked it up, and the water is dark brown. It smells like sugar. Aha. Uh -huh. So, okay, I'm going to go get my boss. I mean, I'm vindicated. You know, you tell me it's my fault. So <laughs> I had to prove it wasn't my fault. So I call him over, and I... Show him the beaker. He says, what, what's sure. that? And I showed him and I demonstrated it again. I said, it's those Domino sugar trucks. They're contaminated. He calls down the research director. He comes down. I do the demonstration again. So next thing you know, the research director and I are walking across the parking lot to the corporate headquarters. We get to the president's office. There's Merrill Salutsky, the guy who hired me, vice president. There's uh, Jim Chereau, the president of Dearborn. First time I've ever met him. In comes Ed Teeley, the marketing manager. I've never met the marketing manager. He's the vice president of marketing, sales manager. I forget, I can't remember the first name of the vice president of sales. Then they call the the, the uh, other manager over from the from the plant, the plant manager. And darn, I'm meeting all these guys and I'm explaining. That. So right away, you know, Chereau wants to know how much product was made this week. Who was it shipped to? Did we need to get that stuff back from the customers? And uh, my new job is. Uh, Whenever a truck arrives in, in Dearborn, is uh, somebody from the plant gets a water sample, they take it in to me, and I test it to make sure there's no sugar in the truck. And if, that's, if it's okay, then it's a pass. Well, here I am, 26 years old, chemist, been with the company six weeks, and everybody knows who the hell I am now. Excellent. So you went from, hey, you're, you did something wrong, we're going to blame this on you, to the hero of the company. Bingo. <laughs> Within, well, that's within a pretty cool two hours, period. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's flip that question around because I know I've got dozens of items that I thought were going to take off marvelously and they didn't. And I'm sure you have some of those stories too. So what what was something that you thought was just going to be fantastic? You, you did all the work for it. You put it out into practice and it just fell flat on its face. Well, I, I don't know. I was thinking about those three crazy companies that I worked for because that, that was what I had kind of noted for this. I, I don't really know any, anything else other than that, Trace. I'm not going to just kind of make something up on the fly here. I don't really. I'm drained. I'm, I'm empty on that. Okay, fair enough. So you're saying some of the companies that that you chose to work with weren't the weren't the best, and right. and you made choices to leave. Okay, that's right. Well, I think you I think you turned that into a good experience. I did. And I, as I you said, tried to see mm -hmm. positives out of those, but uh, 
Well, what are some of the the changes that you've seen in in water treatment? Since you're a chemist, you've seen all sorts of things come and go. What what were some of those? Well, when I was uh, first starting, this is an old story, but when I was first starting, chromates were on the on the on the market still, and I had. Uh, I had sold a few. I mean, the stop pit chemical, which was a chromate boiler treatment, I was still selling that when I first started. It was pretty nice because you could just grab a sample and you just hold this water up to a a yellow slide and you could tell how much chromate was in the boiler without running the single test. But chromates were pretty much outlawed by that time and they were just, just within a year or two of my starting, they were going away. The polychlorophenates were other ones, you know, you had these these types of biocides that were really, really toxic, incredible. So, you know, what was interesting is that we were all struggling to come up with new technologies that could compete with corrosion rates with, you know, chromate, you know, let's go with heavy zinc products and let's go with phosphate and incredible number of problems. I can remember a lot of calcium phosphate scaled up towers Somehow we people forgot the solubility of calcium phosphate is not very high. Mm-hmm. As you know, we wouldn't be using it in a boiler. I mean, how in the heck would they get so screwed up with that? And it got so goofy that we uh, were told when I was with sales in Dearborn, don't use corrosion coupons. Quit using corrosion coupons. Really? Yeah, but this may have not been company policy, but that's what I was told. Don't do it because... You know, when you're showing your customer that you've got a corrosion rate on iron of like seven or eight mils per year, and he's used to getting like 0.5 with chromate, this this is not a good deal. You know, we don't basically, basically what it's saying is we don't have any good products yet that we can sell you. So the answer was let's not let's not show them the test for a while until we figure out what we got together. So a lot of this was driven by fear. You know, you kind of figure, well, my God, uh, competition may get a good working product before we can. And because uh, that's what it is. All of a sudden, the known technology is thrown into the air. You can't use it. And everyone's scrambling, trying to come up with something that works. Eventually, they did. So, Dick, were, were you actually formulated when when the chromates were banned? And no. we had to figure out what to use? No, okay. I was done with the formulations. And I was boiler side anyway. So I probably wouldn't have been involved in that. But no, I was out of the formulations business. I was now in the sales force. Gotcha. So you've listened to the show. You know I do a section called The Boiling Point, and I do that because I see things other water treaters do that they should not be doing. And I'm sure in your career, maybe even yesterday, you saw something, uh, what another water treater did that they shouldn't be doing. So the, the mic is yours. What do you see water treaters do that you just want them to stop doing? Okay, now here I'm going to throw you a curve, Trace. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Now, here's why you see this from your perspective. You're the manager. And I listened to Lukanich and I listened to uh, James McDonald. They're technical directors. They train and they get upset when people do things. I look at it from the standpoint of a, of a competitor. If you want to do dumb things, you go right ahead. You're just going to make it that much easier for me to sell against you. And so I actually applaud when I see stupid things in the field because it just gives me something else I can latch on to to get that account. Well, that is a different perspective on that. But I tell you, if that doesn't motivate people to get better at what they do each and every day because they know there's people out there that do know what they're doing, I don't know what else will. So I think even though it's a different twist on what I was thinking you were going to say, I think it is a great thing to say because you're right. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is another, it's a motivation from the negative. You better you better know your stuff or someone else who does is going to come in and take that account away from you. 
Absolutely. Well, speaking of knowing your stuff, we've got a lot of new water treaters that listen to this show. And they're learning, but they don't know everything quite yet. And that being said, I don't think we ever know everything. But, you know, there's that point when you start out your career and you just feel like you don't know enough to go out and talk to that customer or explain what's going on. So for somebody like that, what's your biggest piece of advice you could give them? Well, I I would say uh, that they should have some courage. I've got a few notes on on that. Uh, Basically, my thought is that anything that is worth doing is worth doing well. And, and so it's a learning process and you, you really need to, you know, get an education, lean on your manager, of course, and do things like that. And even when you get to a level where you think you know what you're doing, you don't ever think I've got this. You can always do anything better uh, than what you're doing it now. You just have to be more creative and think about it. Don't get discouraged and, and don't give up. And just certainly don't listen to those people who said it can't be done. They're probably quitters. And uh, they probably hope you fail. So just keep a positive attitude and keep on learning. Great advice. Now, you said have courage. And I know you are a man of courage. You used to jump out of airplanes, I believe. Is that a correct statement? Uh, yeah, I have 70 parachute jumps under my, under my belt with U.S. Army Special Forces. And I got a confession to make, Trace. I'm afraid of heights. And I was- <laughs> How does that work? I'm terrified every time I did it. Absolutely. But I take pride in the fact that I faced that fear every time and uh, and landed on the ground safely. So any jump you can walk away from is a good jump. How about that? That is, uh, I'm a scuba diver, so I go the other direction. I can't seem to to get up in that airplane that's perfectly good and, and make the decision to jump out of it. So I haven't done that yet. Terrifies the hell out of me. <laughs> Well, Dick, uh, you've seen a lot in your career. You've done a lot in your career. So when you want to learn new things in water treatment, where do you go? How do you do that? Okay. Well, I was going to say that the best way I have ever learned things was to actually be the one teaching it. And the reason that is, is because you know you're going to get hit with questions and you want to make sure you are ready for any question. But these days, I'd say Google is one of the things that I do. AWT members only section, definitely. I have another confession to make. I never read the analyst because I I would prefer to actually learn things that I need to know. So what I do is when I need to know something, I will go online and I will scan the analyst for the topics that I want to learn about. So I, I it's kind of like not reading the dictionary but when you want to look up a word, you go to the dictionary. You don't just say, I'm going to read, you know, the first part of the dictionary. There, There is a couple. There was one there when there was a company. I don't know whether I should mention their name or not. They were one of these chemical, non-chemical companies. They got their deal with cavitation. That was one of their deals. They had a controlled cavitation. And I try to understand how that would work. And I wanted to learn more about cavitation. I realized I didn't have a tremendous knowledge about cavitation. Everybody's got like a one page, oh, here's how cavitation will destroy your impeller and and your pump. So I went online and I found a guy, Dr. Kenneth Suslick, University of uh, Illinois, chemistry department, who had written quite a lot about cavitation. And so I read two or three of his papers and I decided to strike up a conversation with him via email, which was very productive. So I'm going right to the source now, to the research people. And I had learned that there was 
symmetric and asymmetric cavitation, and it's only asymmetric cavitation that uh, creates a problem. The symmetric cavitation occurs in situ and the bubble just collapses and nothing happens. And so I, I learned an awful lot about uh, cavitation by going to a researcher and actually communicating with him. And then I also have a personal library of about 30 or 40 books that I've been collecting over my lifetime. You know, I've got books on metallurgy and corrosion and all sorts of things. So whenever I'm needing to do something, either it's training people or, or whatever, I can go to these manuals and uh, gather information. And, you know, there's a number of times when I've had to do the dirty thing that you guys probably don't like much. And that's the, that I've been an expert witness now three times, twice defending uh, mm -hmm. representing the defendant and once representing the plaintiff. And uh, these books are incredible because they'll take you from another perspective. Also, I just I just think things. I come up with stuff myself. I mean, like that Domino Sugar story I told you. I mean, I don't know where I ever heard the idea of pouring sulfuric acid into sugar water to see whether it's bubbling or not. Maybe I read that. Maybe I just made that up on the fly. I just don't remember anymore. So I, I basically, when you're looking at, at learning things, sometimes you, you, you think you have a problem and you, and you go and you just test it to see what, what you can find, to see whether or not your theory on what that problem is is real or not. So, But yeah, that's basically it. Okay. Well, what would you say your best general water treatment knowledge book that you have in your library is? Mm. Well, I tend to lean very heavily on this corrosion handbook book by Ulick, it has it has data in there that uh, that you can't find in other places. Now, Ulick was the, uh, as I recall, the chairman of the metallurgy department at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's probably deceased now, but I have I have two of his books and it is really they're really informative when you're working with things like aluminum and zinc and, and metals like that, uh, that they, they give you a lot of interesting information that uh, he's this guy has studied everything it's uh, it's unbelievable so and it's it's not like i'm taking it out of a an awt manual where somebody has digested it for you and they've made it apply to to you or your specific application this is a fairly technical general overall uh discussion of the aluminum for example they take all these different metals it's a fairly thick book it's about a, i don't know 800 right. pages thousand pages so well, great advice. Great advice. I haven't heard of that, but great advice. We talked about troubleshooting. You said you had a lot of experience early on in your career. So what are some of the tips and tricks that you've picked up when you're working out of your test kit and you're at that account and something isn't going right? What are some of the first steps that you do to begin your troubleshooting process? Well, yeah, the first thing I do, I don't know whether this is typical or not. Let's say I'm running a boiler test. I normally like to work against the flow of the water. So I'll start with the boiler and then I'll go to the feed water and then I'll go to the and then I'll go to the makeup and maybe then the condensate. So let's say I, I, I'm seeing a problem in the boiler that I think maybe comes from the feed water. I'll then check the feed water for that. And it might be a test I hadn't done. Then, of course, there are problems that come up in plants that... Uh, you see something stupid, it doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe you need to talk to the operators and try to find out what this is, how long it's been going on, what things happened when this started. I had one situation many years ago where condensate was just going to hell 
every now and again. And uh, I, I had the guys checking, basically checking the conductivity of the condensate. And I said, we need to know what is going on when this happens. And we it took me maybe, oh God, it might have been six months. But we figured out that it was coming from one particular building and it happened periodically. And it turned out that it was happening whenever a certain piece of equipment was coming online. Well, this is a piece of equipment that was using water. And darned if some plumber didn't figure out that that little sump pump over there in the corner that you and I would refer to as a condensate receiver was an excellent place to discharge this water to. And, you know, it was like it was driving me crazy because that piece of equipment was only run once or twice a week. And so sometimes you'd see it, sometimes you wouldn't. And it totally shouldn't have been there. So, you know, you what you really need to do in theory, I mean, what I would say is use scientific method. You have to find out when things are happening. You just come up with a theory as to what it is. And then you say, well, how am I going to test this theory? And maybe it's a chemical test. Maybe it's a matter of looking at logs when people run equipment. Maybe it's a matter of talking to people. But there's something going on, and it's going on at certain times, and you have to find out what they are. And I don't know. I can't really be more specific than that. I think that's a, a, a great advice. Dick, who would you say is the person that's helped you the most throughout your career? Well, I, I have a number. I'm, I have a long career, so it's more than one person. But early on... Uh, there was a gentleman named Fred Wilkes. Now, uh, John Zabrita knew Fred, too, and he would probably share my views with about Fred. Fred was a great old water treater, and I knew him from Dearborn Educational Services when I first got my training. He was a very, very positive, very knowledgeable guy. He would love to inspire young guys like me uh, to go out there and, you know, do whatever you could. And then later, as I became technical director... Uh, George Beck. George Beck was a guy from Kansas, did a lot of uh, utility work and stuff like that. And he was an incredible field sales guy, but also sort of technical as well. He may not have known chemistry, but he knew what worked and what didn't work. And of more recent years, now, even though I'm fairly accomplished and, and I know a lot of stuff, I always bounce things off other people. And, you know, quite frankly, I use uh, Gary Garcia a lot as, as a guy that I bounce things off of, you know, a master's company plug out for Gary there. And, you know, if I ever want to know something about, about silica, well, Tim Keister is going to get a call from me because Tim knows more about silica than anybody I, I know. And if I need a waste treatment expert to tell me a few things, I'm going to call Rick Brust. So there are, there are people that you know are subject matter experts in your life, and you reach out to these people, and, and they're the ones who can actually help you and advise you on things. Great answer. Well, Dick, this has been fun. It's not quite over yet because we've got oh, yeah. the lightning round. So are you ready to advance over to the lightning round where the point values are double? Buckle up. <laughs> All right. So we've got a time machine. You crawl in it. You set the clock back to the first day of you starting as a water treater. What advice would you give yourself? Well, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes and I've done a lot of things, but I would just tell myself to chill out. Don't get so upset about uh, making a mistake. We all do. And sometimes that's the best way we learn. All right. Well, there you go. What are the last three books that you've read? Well, that actually, I have read a number of them. Uh, I've read two of Bill O'Reilly's books, Killing Lincoln, because I've always thought history about Lincoln was fascinating. Killing Patton was another one. As a soldier, I really, really enjoyed that book. And then I also read the, uh, was it called The Narrative Life of Frederick Douglass? He was a slave 
and uh, ended up uh, being liberated and, you know, went on to be quite an author and got all kinds of stuff. And, you know, you might think this is funny, but I am currently reading a book called General Chemistry by Linus Pauling. This guy won a Nobel Peace Prize twice. So that's the bonus for you. And that's part of my return to basics. You know, I've got a good background in chemistry, but, you know, the chemistry you don't, you lose, you forget. And this guy won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1954 for chemistry, and he won it again in 1962 for opposing uh, the spread of nuclear weapons. Wow. Well, Dick, if they make a movie about you, who plays Dick? Oh, well, now if they make a movie about me, Trace, I am hoping it's a comedy because we should. <laughs> yep, we should. Here's why. We should never take ourselves too seriously. Uh, so I, right. I guess Tom Hanks would be it. Great choice. Great choice. Now, now final question. Lots of great answers on past scaling up guests. So no pressure here, but just want to warn you. So if you could talk to anyone throughout history, who would it be with and why? Trace, I have actually been prepared to answer this question for at least 25 years. And that is Sir Winston Churchill. Never, never, never give up. And this guy was an inspiration. He, uh, he was the first guy to call out Hitler when Neville Chamberlain was uh, saying he could work with Hitler and we have, we have a, a deal we can live with, peace in our time. He led England through its darkest days, and that must have been horrible, you know, to be able to do that. And after he was finally in, secured in victory, the Brits threw him out and, and retained somebody else to be prime minister. But, but he, he is an unbelievable guy, and I love that quote, never, never, never give up. You know, it, it's funny. I've never been interviewed on my own show, but if anybody ever asked me, I would have given the same <laughs> answer. How about that? He's one of yes. my heroes as well. Dick, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing some of the history about how you got started and the trials and tribulation of being a water treater your entire life. And, and this has been a lot of fun. I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing with the scaling up. Let me make a sure. closing comment here, Trace. That I've thought, thought that it's not what happens to us in our lives that really defines us, but it's uh, it's how we respond to those things. And I've always tried to respond in a positive, constructive manner. So I would give that as a, as a word of advice to everybody. I think it's a great one. And with that, I think those are great closing words. Thanks so much thank for coming you. on the show. Thanks. Folks, I got to tell you, if you know somebody who has been in this industry for a good amount of time, make friends with them. You can read all day long, but there is so much value to hearing how they have experienced this industry. Dick, thanks so much for coming on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Well, a couple of things I want to talk about. I want to get into a couple of questions, but before I do, uh, we have a technical training for the Association of Water Technologies coming up in the near future. And folks, this is my favorite thing that I do all year. I get to stand in front of an audience and teach and talk and ask questions about water treatment. So I hope you join me at these technical training seminars because you're going to get a tremendous amount out of it. So the first technical training seminar we have, and they're the exact same thing. They're just in two different areas of the country. We've got uh, February 28th through March 4th. We are going to be in Las Vegas. And Everybody loves to go to Vegas, but now there's even a bigger reason to go to Vegas because you get to learn more about water treatment. Now, if you can't make that one, we're going to be doing it again, March 21st through 25th 
in Cleveland, Ohio. I urge you to go to uh, scalinguph2o.com, technical training 2018, and read about all the things that you are going to miss if you don't go to this technical training. So I hope to see you there. I always have a blast getting together with folks that know exactly what it is that I do day after day, and I hope to see you there. Let's get into a couple of questions and see what's in the mailbag. So the first question that I've drawn is, how do I know if I have glycol in a closed loop system? So I assume this person picked up an account, they didn't know anything about it, neither did the customer, and maybe it has some sort of coloring in it or something, and they want to know if that's glycol. Let's talk about the coloring first. So if the coloring is a pH-sensitive dye, and we've talked about phenolphthalein before, so if you're a Scaling Up listener, you know that term, phenolphthalein only knows how to be pink in a pH of 8.3 and above. So the first thing you can do is see if you put a couple of drops of acid in your sample and that dye goes away, it's not dyed because of the glycol because that's uh, just a dye and that doesn't uh, change in different pHs. Now, I guess 100% that doesn't really tell you if it's glycol or not, but that's something you can start at. If it is a dye, it's not going to do anything. That still doesn't tell you if it's glycol or not. So hopefully you have a refractometer in your test kit. They're not very expensive. If you have any sort of closed loop system that has glycol in it, you definitely want to carry one of these. So you put a drop of water on this refractometer and then you read it and it will tell you at what temperature freezing will occur. And if it's anything lower than 32, it's got glycol in it. And that's really the only way you are going to know. Now, probably somebody out there is listening and they're saying, yeah, but is it ethylene glycol or is it propylene glycol? And that you're going to have an issue with determining. You're going to have to send that off to a lab and they're going to have to test for that. Now, the only way that you can, uh, you can actually test for that is if it's not in the system, if it's in a barrel and you don't know if it's ethylene glycol or, or uh, propylene glycol and you know it's 100%, you can look at the specific gravity and you can test it that way. But really in a closed loop system, that's not going to do you any good at all. So my answer to that question is a refractometer. And that'll definitely tell you that if it's below 32 that's your answer. It's got glycol in it. If you have to know what type of glycol is in there, you got to send that off to a lab. Next question is, I have a pH meter and the probe keeps going bad. They go in to say how expensive they are and they can't keep replacing this. Are there any tips that I can give to make the pH probe last longer? Well, sure. And I want to say that we talked about this on a show previously, but uh, maybe I didn't go into detail with it. Probes, as the way they're made, as soon as they get made, they start to lose their life. They, they only are good for so long and everything we do to them shortens their life. And that includes using them in a regular fashion. So there are three things I think that you can do to increase the life of a pH probe. The number one thing is temperature. Make sure the temperature of the probe and the temperature of the sample are as close to each other as they can be before they see each other. 
when we have a super hot sample, uh, we take it out of a boiler and we take in our probe or our meter out of the trunk of our car and it's winter time and we put those things together, that's not a good combination. So try to get those temperatures as close to the same as possible. Whenever you're testing, you want to get your tests down to about room temperature because it actually does change the results of the test. We're not really talking about that in this instance. We're just talking about it with the uh, pH probe. So try to get it at the same temperature. The next thing is to keep the probe clean. The cleaner it is, the better result it is going to give. And it's also going to keep the, the, the juice that's inside there and in, uh, it's, it's going to keep it in there longer. So um, come up with a regular regimen that you are cleaning your probe. Now I clean mine every week, depending on how much I use that meter or how dirty the system was that I just tested. So uh, minimum once a week, a lot of times I'm cleaning it every day. Sometimes I clean it after a test that I did because I know that system was, was just gnarly. So uh, how do I do that? Very easy, I take some Windex, I put it on a, on a soft microfiber uh, cloth and I just simply wipe around the probe and then I rinse that out really well. If you haven't done that in a while, I think you will be amazed at what comes off of that probe. Now, the third thing is probably the number one reason that pH probes go bad early. Again, all pH probes are gonna go bad, but we need to be able to get an expected life out of them. And I know you're saying, well, how long is that? It's really hard to say. I've had meters for, uh, or I've had probes for a couple of months. I've also had them for a couple of years, and I can't really tell you that I've done anything different. So the number one tip that I'm going to give you is to keep it hydrated. Folks, if you let these things dry out, they are not going to work. And I know there's some procedures out there that you can try to rehydrate them. I have never had luck with getting a pH probe to work very well after it's lost its special juice. So how do you do that? Well, you want to make sure that you keep it saturated with the right stuff. And I've seen people use DI water to keep it hydrated. And actually, you're doing the exact opposite of what you need to do. There's no ions in the DI water. So everything that's inside that little glass probe is going to migrate out to help that DI water get some more stuff in it. And that's not the point of this. So if you're using DI water, stop. Use DI water to rinse it, but do not use DI water to store it. What you need to do is use electrode storage solution. So go to your favorite test kit supplier and ask them for electrode storage solution. And a lot of you are saying, well, hey, I just use pH4 buffer. And that's pretty much the same thing as electrode storage solution. Well, it's, it is, but it's got one difference. And I think this is the part that we talked about on a show previously. It's got a pink dye in there, so you know it's pH4 buffer. That pink dye will shorten the life of the probe. So make sure you're using the right stuff, which is electrode storage solution. I hope that helps. Hope that gives you a little bit more insight and gets you spending a little less money on replacing those probes. Folks, I have so much fun bringing the show to you. So I appreciate you listening and I look forward to the next time we're together on Scaling Up. 